Well, if you've been around here for a while, one of the things you'll know about me from my high school years, it's not a, not a great thing, but it's I ran cross country. I wasn't that great, um, but I did run cross country. And um, if you don't know what cross country is, that's when you go out into a field or hills and you run for no apparent reason with nothing chasing you. Um, for about 3.1 miles, and it's, it's a bit of a race, and uh, it was actually one of the things that the Lord used in my life to, to shape me in lots of different ways. Um, as I was thinking about our text this morning, I thought about something that would often happen during those races. See, during these races, you would, you would take off and you have a cross-country coach, which I didn't really know what a cross-country coach did until I ran cross-country. And what would happen is you would, you would run out to one part of the of, of the the the, the track or whatever it is, the, uh, the path, and all of a sudden the coach would appear out of nowhere and he'd be like, here's your time, here's what's coming up next, and here's a word of advice. Um, and then he would disappear. And then you'd run around another hill and up a hill. And, and then at the next one, he's there, which I have no idea how he got there so quickly. He should have been the one running since he was so fast. But he would, he would meet you at all of these key places along the race and he would, he would tell you how much further it was to go and what you needed to do in the next part. You've got a hill coming, run fast, lean into the hill. Or you've got, you're gonna be going down a hill, so sprint, give it what you've got. You've only got this much longer. And he would meet you all along the way and give you these little words of encouragement to help you to persevere and to run as best as you could. That's very much what it seems like the Apostle Paul is doing here at the end of 1 Thessalonians. We've reached a section here of application in chapters 4 and 5 where he is coming to this Thessalonian church, this, this brand new body of believers, and he is giving them exhortation after exhortation after exhortation, little words about, hey, this is where you are, this is what God has done, this is what's up ahead, here's how you should respond, keep running the race together. And that's where we are this morning. Uh, last week we were in 12 down through 14, and this or 15. This week we were picking up in verses 16. Uh, we're going to go through verse 21, but I'm going to go ahead and read verse through verse 28 as it all kind of fits together. We'll take the first part this week and the second part next week. First Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 16. Paul to the Thessalonian church. He says, "Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks." In all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Can't you hear Paul kind of like that cross-country coach? Okay, we're running. Christ is coming soon, chapter 4 and chapter 5. We are going to see him soon. So in light of that, here's what you are to, to do. And if you want to summarize this whole section here, we, we might say something like this. that we, we grow in sanctification. We're becoming more like Jesus. We grow in sanctification by speaking to God in prayer and hearing from God's Spirit. We grow in sanctification by speaking to God 
and hearing from God's Spirit. I think what the Apostle Paul is attempting to do this this morning through this text for the Thessalonians and for us is, is teaching us about the sort of posture of heart that we are to have before God. We're going to look at it in, in two sections. We are to be vigilant in prayer, verses 16 through 18. That is our speaking to God. Being vigilant in prayer, verses 16 through 18. And then, secondly, being sensitive to the Spirit. Being sensitive to the Spirit. That's verses 19 through 21 that we are to hear from God's Spirit. Let's pick it up here uh, in verses 16 through 18 again. We are to be a people who are vigilant in prayer. Verse 16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So Paul ties these three commands together in a way that is intended to teach us how to pray. He's expecting the Thessalonian church and us, as we are running this race toward the day when we will see the Lord Jesus, that we are to be a prayerful people. Now, one of the most important things to notice right out of the gate in regards to these three uh, commands here is these, these commands are, uh, are all in the plural. Now, that might be hidden from us here in our English translations, uh, unless you have the y'all translation of the Bible, which is an, actually a translation of the Bible uh, put out by Dallas Theological Seminary to help highlight the second person plural, which, you know, I don't know how, how you say you, but uh, up in Jersey, use guys, right? Or in the South, it's y'all. Well, this command is to use guys. It's to y'all. It's to not just individuals, certainly to individuals, but to everybody. It's to the whole congregation. This call to prayer, and as we'll see also the hearing from the Spirit, is given to us as a church family, which includes you as an individual. So you as an individual Christian hear this, and us as a body of Christians hear this. And then this morning, if you happen to be here and you, you know yourself to not be a Christian, or even as we go through this, you realize that you don't know uh, God through faith in Christ, I want to encourage you to know that, that one of the most important things about knowing God is that, is that we, we talk to him. We, we bring our requests to him. He is a God who is personal and desires you to know him. We could talk more about that as we, as we go through. But as we look at verses 16 through 18 and this, this call to be vigilant in prayer, you're going to notice here there's, there's four qualities about our prayers that Paul desires us to cultivate. The first here is that we are to be joyful. Joyful. We are to pray joyfully. Look again, verse 16. Rejoice always. Rejoice always. We are to have a posture of heart that, that finds Joy and gladness in God and in his promises. It's really important to notice here that what Paul is doing as he's teaching us to pray and to pray with this, this spirit of joyfulness is that he is, he is not going to call us to root our joy and our gladness in circumstances. Rather, he is tying our, our hope and our happiness not in comforts or in health or in stocks or in our sports teams or in politicians, because those things are always changing. 
But rather, throughout this letter, what he has been doing is he has been tying their hope in God, who is the unchanging one. In Christ who came and will come again. In the God who gives his word that is filled with never changing, ever relevant promises. He wants this body of believers and he wants us to be prayerful and to do it with a spirit of joy. Because God never changes, we can rejoice always. Did you catch that? Rejoice always. Because God is ever faithful, we are never exempt from rejoicing. This, this means that rejoicing is always in season. It is always a right time to respond to the circumstances that you find yourself in in light of who God is and what he is doing in the midst of either a really sweet time or a really sour time. This is how the believer, this is not just a call to just ignore reality and be like, oh, we love God, everything's fine. No, 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 we'll get to that in a moment. But rather, this is a call to root our prayers in the never-changing God in the midst of a world of ever-changing circumstances. That is how a believer can rejoice always. And this letter, if you go back through and study it, just this letter, it is filled with reasons for rejoicing. The Thessalonians would have many reasons that God had brought his word to them, that God gave them leaders who loved them, that God was using the Thessalonians' faith to help spur other people's faith in Christ. And that Jesus was coming soon and he would raise their, uh, their dead loved ones and he would raise them if their faith is in Christ. And then he would deliver them from the wrath to come. This is, these are some of the reasons that believers, as we're praying, that we can pray joyfully. Not because of everything around us being okay, but because of God being ever faithful. So we pray rejoicing always. We pray joyfully. We also pray constantly. Did you catch that verse 17? Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. This command shows up four times in the New Testament and it springs from Jesus' teaching in Luke 18. The, we ought to always pray and never lose heart. We ought to always pray and never lose heart. And you'll remember in Jesus' teachings, the reason that we should keep praying is because we have a good heavenly Father who is always listening. He hears what's said in secret. He knows what we need even before we ask. He, because Christ has shed his blood to pave the way, now is always accessible. Even though he's holy, 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 like we sang about early, earlier, he is accessible because Jesus shed his blood to cover our transgressions if we will turn from our sin and trust in him. And now we can have an all-access pass to the Holy One of Heaven. This is what God has done for us. And in light of that, we ought to pray constantly, always praying. Now, if... If an English teacher were grading this section of scripture, they would take off for redundancy. And the reason is because of all these commands in verses 16 through 18 are in the, the, 
the present tense, which means it's an ongoing command, and then the active voice, which means it's something that you are to do. So if you were going to, you could translate these verses this way. Continually choose to always rejoice. Continually pray with perseverance. Continually give thanks in all times, in all circumstances. He's really driving home the point that we are to always be praying. Which may make you wonder, well, how are we supposed to do that? How are you supposed to, to always, how are you supposed to pray without ceasing? What, what does that mean? Well, I think when you look at the Christian life, there's, there's two ways that this happens. The first is planned prayer time. Jesus speaks about stepping away to your prayer closet, which basically means a, a quiet place, which any of you who have ever been around children, you're like, where can I go? Well, I'm either going to lock myself in the bathroom or a closet, because those are the only two places that you can go where there's quiet. Jesus is saying that sort of thing. Find a quiet place. Step away. Guard your schedule in such a way that you always have time to step away, leave your phone out there, leave your phone if, or your watch if it dings at you, and go tell people, listen, I need, I'll be back in 30 minutes or whatever. And you go and you pray. That should be a regular, daily thing for the believer to where you're always marked by stepping away from this crazy world, letting God run it, and you casting all your anxieties upon him knowing that he cares for you. Then there should also be what we might call a spirit of prayer, which is a posture of prayerfulness where you might have what you might call spontaneous prayer, where you wake up in the morning and, Lord, thank you for a new day. Lord, might today be the day the Lord Jesus returns. Would you send him soon? And then you get up and you go in to brush your teeth and you're like, Lord, thank you for water. Thank you that I have running water. Or if you don't have running water that day, you can say, Lord, thank you for all the other days I did have running water. And you're like, Lord, thank you for indoor plumbing. Lord, thank you that I don't have to go to a creek to wash off. Lord, thank you that I have clothes to wear. And what you do is you become aware of life. And you begin to commune with the Lord as if he's actually there. Because he is. And you actually begin to see everything, every circumstance through his divine providence of arranging things, either him being good and showing that in a way of his blessing you in some sort of way that's tangible or just in a hard circumstance that you can go to him in the midst of this. Whatever it may be, you're creating a posture where you're continually communing with the Lord, always talking. Now, it may be a little socially awkward if you're always doing that outside, out loud. You're just walking around praying all the time. But you know what? There's times for that and it doesn't matter. Um, but there is to be a spirit of prayer to where as your phone, if you will, is always downloading data, unless you should put it on airplane mode, the believer should never be on airplane mode. Even, even the, the Psalms speak about praying while he sleeps. May our souls even be praying, right? So pray that God would help you to be joyful and constant in prayer. And by the way, the command is not unrelated to the call to rejoice because if we're going to be rejoicing continually, it's going to happen by praying continually. These things feed on one another because it sets our heart on God. So we pray joyfully and we pray constantly and we pray thankfully. Where'd Dan Mackett go? Wherever he went, Dan, thank you. That was, that, was, that was great. Thank you for giving us just a couple moments before we sang a song. Because it would be easy just to go into a song about giving God thanks and not even realize that's actually what we're doing. But taking a moment 
to grab some things that the Lord had done for you so that when you sing then, you're bringing words of thanks to him for specific things that he's done. This is to mark the believer. We are to give thanks in all circumstances. So in every situation that you face, whether awful or enjoyable, find reasons to thank God. Now, I think one of the reasons this exhortation is so important is because one of the most common and most dangerous sins for your soul is that of grumbling. You see, grumbling, murmuring, complaining is like carbon monoxide to the soul. You don't often notice that you do it, but for some of us, it's our normal response. I hate Mondays. Traffic, even with Rona. Uh, Rona, uh, masks, I hate masks. I hate Fox, I hate CNN, I hate them all. Arr, grumble, why only these two people? Like, like just, gr- I mean, it is easy to just grumble about everything. There is a temptation to gripe and to complain and to murmur about anything in life, about money, about singleness, about marriage, about kids, about health, your bodies, anything. I just want you to understand there is certainly a difference between bringing concerns to God and grumbling. The bringing concerns to God is is part of praying. We're going to do that. We want to bring those to him. There's nothing too small. He says, whatever makes you anxious, cast it on me. I care for you. Grumbling, however, is the opposite of that. It is basically a protest against God's providence in your life. I don't like being in this season. I don't like being in this place at this pace with these people. To where it's basically a form of protest against God. Now, it doesn't mean you have to like any kind of evil thing that comes into your life, but you can see it as coming through the hand of God who never does evil and always is good, and you can say, Lord, help me to trust you here. Thank you that you are trustworthy, even when it seems like everything else isn't. You see, gratefulness combats grumbling. It it wars against it. In all circumstances, we are to be intentionally, continually drawing attention to God's goodness. Do you remember that God actually gave a prescription for the nation of Israel when they were coming out of Egypt into the promised land? He gave them doctor's orders, if you will, to pick up a prescription to help them against grumbling. Anybody remember what it was? Stones of remembrance. When God took them through the Jordan River to head into the promised land, he goes, by the way, while the water's down, I want one rep from each of the tribes to go back out there and grab you a stone. And I want you to carry that stone with you. And they're like, why? They're like, let me tell you why. Because when you get to the other side, you're going to build it into a little monument. And when your kids say, Dad, what's a pile of rocks about? You'd be like, let me tell you a little story. The Lord brought us out of slavery through the Jordan River into this land of milk and honey. God has been so good to us. They were to pick up stones of remembrance so that they could remember something to thank God for which would guard them against the grumbling of all that God hadn't given them. They seem to neglect it, but nevertheless, 
thankfulness. So we are to pray joyfully and constantly and thankfully and humbly. Did you catch that verse 18? For this, and in the original language, you can see it ties all three of these previous exhortations together. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So the for there explains why we must pray this way. You want to know what God's will is for your life? What does God want from you? He wants his children to not be tossed around by circumstances. He wants them to not be lured away by temptation, but to joyfully, constantly, thankfully humble themselves before him unceasingly in prayer. To stop finding their refuge in their own strength, their own wisdom, in the news, in changes in culture or in entertainments and escapes, but rather to love, to trust, and to depend upon him. That's God's will for your life, is to be able to see everything around you in light of who he is and to constantly commune with him about it, both in easy things and terribly difficult things. Now, just a few things to consider about prayer. Number one is this. Prayer is spiritual warfare. Prayer is spiritual warfare. It's not the only aspect of spiritual warfare, but prayer is spiritual warfare. In Ephesians chapter 6, we are told that there is an unseen world that opposes God and opposes us seeking God, and that we are to war against it by putting on the whole armor of God. And right after the call to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one, Paul says, pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Prayer is warfare. Now this, what I'm about to say, is not intended to bring condemnation. If it makes you feel guilty, then sift that before the Lord, and maybe you should feel guilty. But I'd like you to consider your prayer life for a moment. How regularly do you pray? How often do we pray like what's just been commanded here? Now, I don't need you to stand up and tell me, well, I pray this longer, this, that, but think about it for a moment. And I want you to talk about this with others. Ask, how is your prayer life going in light of what God's prescribed here? And if you're anything like me, I think most Christians most normally feel that their prayer life is is weak. Sometimes you'll meet somebody who that's not the case and praise God for that. And if that's you in this season, praise God, fan it into flame, keep running. Most Christians tend to think and realize that their prayer life is weak. And you know why? Because prayer is hard. Prayer is hard work. I mean, just think of the amount of distraction that as soon as you're like, you know what, it's that time to pray. I'm going to step away and pray. Think about everything that swoops in at that moment. This is a great time to organize my library by alphabetizing it all. Oh, I got to put a little laundry first. Ooh, you know what? I should run the dishwasher first. I mean, you never do laundry and dishes. And now when it's time to pray, now it's time, right? Oh, I need to call this first. I'll send that first email. Let me check the news first. What's on social media first so I know what to pray about? And then six, you know, six hours later, like, oh, I didn't pray. 
Prayer is warfare. The reason it's so hard is because there is an unseen world and unseen enemies, Satan and his minions that oppose it, and your flesh, your sinful flesh, does not want to draw strength from God. Prayer is warfare. This is why it's so strongly opposed. Distraction, temptation, impatience, unbelief, all seem to war against our attempts to pray. You see, Satan would have us do almost anything other than pray because prayer draws us close to God. This is why you've got to fight through it. This is why you've even got to pray to pray. Lord, I want to pray. Would you protect my heart and my mind in this time? Help me to pray. Second thing to notice about prayer here is that prayer is for hurting people. Prayer is for hurting people. It's not only for hurting people, but it is for hurting people. Yesterday morning, while I was working on this text, I took a break, and I was watching the news about the hurricanes, about what was happening in Kenosha, reading about Chadwick Bozeman's death. And then I got a text from a friend who was at a funeral for a 45-year-old mother of two who had just died of cancer. And I'm staring at this text to rejoice, to always give thanks. And I admitted to the Lord, Lord, right now that feels hard and strange, and I don't know how to do that right now because I feel so overwhelmed, plus all my own personal things I'm struggling with. Life is hard, and I think when it's hard, then especially we're tempted to not pray. Either because we doubt God's goodness, we've prayed for so long and this is what it got me. First of all, I want to say if you're feeling like that, this is not the kind of church where you have to pretend that's not happening. We want you to be honest about however you're struggling. This is important part of, of life together. There's nobody in here who's perfect. We're all following one perfect one. His name's Jesus. But we need to understand that this letter is written to, to hurting people. These, this was a persecuted church. Since they started following Jesus, they had endured unjust treatment from family, friends, neighbors, co-workers. They had been mocked beaten, arrested, threatened. This, these exhortations were given from God to a suffering people. And not only were they suffering with persecution, but also with, with great grief. These were a grieving people. Chapter 4 and 5, the first part of it, it's all about him trying to encourage them with the reality that Jesus is returning. And why is he doing that? Because there's a bunch of people grieving without hope because they've lost loved ones. This is a persecuted, grieving people. You see, they were facing terrible turmoil. And in their pain, they may have been tempted, just like we are, to feel alone and forgotten, unseen, unloved. And oftentimes when we're hurting, the last thing we want to do is to pray. 
which is actually when we need it most, if you will. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says that we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. How? It's because we pray without ceasing. This is why the Psalms, by the way, are filled, filled with prayers of lament about crying out to God from a place of brokenness and confusion and saying, God, it hurts here. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? That's life in a fallen world. And that's why the Psalms are filled with examples of how someone who feels that way can respond to God honestly and then cast themselves upon him with thankfulness. That's why thankfulness is always tied in here so important. It roots you, it anchors you. Rather than just being angry at God, which we should never be, but you should always tell him when you are. It, 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 the thankfulness roots you in how good he has been. He has been faithful. Look at the cross, look at the empty tomb. Consider his faithfulness to you. He has been good, even if it's hard to see it now. Prayer keeps our eyes up to remember that even though it may be a cloudy day, that the sun is shining on the other side. Faith looks through it and cries out to the God who never changes. Prayer is for hurting people. The third thing to notice here about prayer is that God helps you to pray to him. God helps you to pray to him. You see, a call to prayer, a call to prayer is a, a call to cast ourselves upon the Holy Spirit for help. Listen to this from Romans 8, Romans 8:26. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray as we ought. And this is in the context of suffering again, by the way. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This means when you say, Lord, I don't even know what to pray, the Spirit knows what to pray, and the posture of turning your heart toward the Lord, the Spirit works in that and prays on your behalf. How? I don't know, but He does. He communes on your behalf. You see, prayer is a gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who first gives you grace to even know who God is, to see Jesus as a Savior and a God as a Father. The Holy Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, gives joy as a fruit. Matthew 26, Jesus said, though the flesh is weak, the Spirit is willing to help you pray without ceasing. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it's the Holy Spirit who moves us to thankfulness in prayer. You see, one of the things that's very important to understand about the Christian life is that God helps you accomplish everything he commands. God gives you grace and strength to accomplish everything that he commands you to do, which is the exact opposite than every other religion, where you have some God who gives a book and he says, come catch me if you can, climb the ladder, good luck, and if you don't, judgment. The God of the Bible is not like that. The God of the Bible is, says, hey, here's truth. You are so far away. But here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to come down. And Christ lives it out perfectly, dies on the cross for all the ways we don't, goes into the grave, raises from the dead three days later, ascends into glory, gives his spirit now who indwells believers, who now empowers our everything he calls us to do. 
God gives you grace to do everything he commands you to do, including to pray this way. So ask him for help. Say, God, I can't rejoice right now. I don't know what to rejoice about. Help me, show me, teach me, lead me. And if you're not even strong enough to read some words in scripture to find something to, to pray about, grab a friend and say, I can't even read right now. Pray, read, read to me. Give me truth. This sort of desperate prayerfulness is to mark a church. I love our church. I don't know that this marks us. I don't say that to shame you. I don't know that it marks me like it should. This is thoroughly convicting. Would you pray that God would make us a people who pray? who aren't just satisfied with hearing truth and figuring out some stuff and hearing a minute, minute you know, talking about prophecy because that's interesting, but like they care to hear from God and to commune with him and to know him. I think it's, it does happen, but may it all the more. May we be a church that prays. As we do that, we also want to cultivate a sensitivity to the Spirit, which, by the way, these two things feed one another, obviously. The more we're praying, the more we're going to be in tune with uh, the Spirit of God. And this is where Paul goes now in verses 19 through 21. Be sensitive to the Spirit. So be vigilant in prayer and now sensitive to the Spirit. Verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. First and foremost here, the, the, the spirit that he is referring to here is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. He was active. So by the way, not just, yeah, he is not an it, not an energy force feeling, the Holy Ghost heebie-jeebies or whatever. Like that's not, that's not who the Holy Spirit is. He is the third person of the Trinity. He was active in the creation of the world. He was behind the inspiration of the scriptures. He causes regeneration by opening our eyes to behold Jesus. He indwells believers. He seals us, Ephesians tells us, until the day of redemption as God's children. Which all of that, by the way, is super amazing when you think about it. So the incarnation, the idea that the second person of the Trinity the Son of God would become a man and dwell among us is amazing. I dare say equally amazing is that the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, chooses to dwell in believers. How humble of a God do we serve? I wouldn't want to live in me. I mean, goodness. All right, maybe you're better than me, but that's, I don't want that. If I'm God, the last place I want to be is in me. But he loves his people. He's with his people and even in them through the Spirit. That's amazing. God dwells in you if you are in Christ. Doesn't make you a God. That's a totally different religion. That's Mormonism. We are talking about you being filled with the Spirit of God and dwelt by him to help you. He comforts us. He convicts us of our sin. He gifts us to serve his purposes in his power. He intercedes on our behalf in prayer, as we saw a moment ago. He enlightens our eyes to see God's word and God's world with lights turned on, to see it as all from him and for him. He leads and empowers obedience. He unites us with Jesus and is transforming and conforming us into the image of Jesus. It's that sanctification that we'll look at next week. 
It happens slowly but surely. This is who the Spirit is. And there's, depending on how you count them, um, I'm going to say there's, there's six New Testament commands about how we relate to the Holy Spirit that are important. This one is the one that's in our text here, verse 19, do not quench the Spirit, will be our sixth. The first is to be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. It's a call to yield to the Holy Spirit's work, to not resist it, but rather like a sail, to put the sail up and to catch the wind of what God is doing. Be filled with the Spirit. To secondly, walk by the Spirit, Galatians 5.16. This is, we are filled with the Spirit and we walk in the Spirit as we obey God's commands. We then keep in step with the Spirit, Galatians 5.25, which means that our external living should line up with the Holy Spirit's internal leading through the Word. Then, fourthly, we are to, both Ephesians and Jude tells us to pray in the Spirit, which is a call to pray according to God's will, which is why we need to know God's Word, so that we pray in line with what God loves and God desires. If we pray anything according to His will, we know that we'll have it. And then fifthly, those are all positive commands, and then there's two negative commands, if you will. Those are all do this, then there's two don't do this. The f- Number five is do not grieve the Spirit, Ephesians 4.30. Do not offend Him by sinning. And in the context, it's all about how we relate to one another. So when you sin against one another, you don't just hurt them, but you hurt the Spirit who dwells within them. You grieve Him. And then sixthly, our text here, do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. The word quench means to throw water on a fire in order to extinguish it. And again, it's in the the present tense. It's a continue to not quench the Spirit. Don't do it and keep on not doing it. I think that image is is striking, right? Because the Holy Spirit is often portrayed in Scripture as as a fire within the believer, continually burning to give us passion for Christ, to fuel obedience to Christ, refining us, burning off the dross of sinfulness in our life to make us look like Christ. But what this text highlights for us here is that there's a way to relate to the Holy Spirit that throws water on him, if you will. Not in a way that can extinguish his eternal flame to where you can lose your salvation. That's that's not the case. If you are sealed, you are sealed to the day of redemption. But, but, but rather, in a way that causes him to withdraw fellowship with him, that diminishes power for obedience, that saps your subjective sense of assurance, that drains joy and peace. This is why many who, well, this is why if you're a Christian, and you're trying to live both in the world and with God, you're miserable. It's because you're riding the fence, and when you ride the fence, you get splinters. It is uncomfortable. You have too much of God in you to enjoy the world, and too much of the world in you to enjoy God, and it just it's quenching the spirit. The spirit's work, I want to burn off this sin. I want to make you more like Jesus. And you're like, stop, I like my sin. I like my sin. Okay, I like you, Holy Spirit, but not today. Now I'll do this and that. And that double-mindedness and all of that, it, it saps fellowship with him. This is the picture that Paul is telling this church. Don't do that. The spirit is working in you. This is why, if you're a Christian, you feel guilty when you sin 
What that is, it's the Holy Spirit, if you will, pricking your conscience and saying, no, you, you were bought with a price. Don't look at that. Don't say that. Don't respond like that. That's not what Jesus would do. That's not what Jesus would say. That's not how Jesus would act. And, and persisting in sin is you saying, quiet, I like this, or I deserve this. Paul says, do not quench spirit. Well, how do we quench the spirit? Well, as I've been saying, we intentionally give in to temptation. There have been times as a believer where I have been pursuing a temptation that was set before me. My flesh wanted to see how close I could get to it, and I could feel the Holy Spirit almost, I didn't hear anything, but you, you sensed no, 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 and then you just keep going, and you can just feel empty. Not that he leaves you and you lose your salvation, but there is a fellowship that's withdrawn. You can neglect to pray and to read if you're not constantly fanning the flame as we used the image last week through word and through prayer. This is why he's telling you to pray without ceasing. Fan that flame. Right? To indulge in soul-numbing entertainment. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I get ready to watch a sports thing, I'm, I'm going to watch a game. Sit down, get excited about watching the game. Then three hours later after the game, I'm like, now nah, I feel like I wasted my life. That's because it's not, it can't give you whatever you're looking for. I'm not saying don't watch a game. I'm just saying be careful how much soul-numbing entertainment you're taking in. Refuse to follow urges to reach out to a brother or sister or to evangelize, to withhold encouragement or praise or song out of fear for others. There's times, like I know we're not a real expressive bunch, and there's times when I'd love to just shout out amen or get them or yes, Lord, or whatever, something like that, and I can be afraid of what people will think. Don't quench the spirit if he's prodding you, right? I think one of the, just before I look at the prophecy part here, one of the things that's very important as we're talking about this is to understand that sin is not just an impersonal breaking of rules. I hope you're noticing here that sin is a personal offense against the Father who predestined you the Son who shed his blood and intercedes for you, and the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. It is a personal offense against God. This is why judgment is so severe, is because sin is not just a breaking of rules of some book that God found in a library and be like, ooh, we should do this. Commands are an extension of his character. He says, this is what I'm like. And when you say, I don't want to be like you, I want to do what I want to do, it's a personal offense against him. In this context, the primary way that he's thinking about them not quenching the spirit is, verse 20, do not despise prophecies. Now, what is prophecy? Well, as 1 Corinthians 14 says, prophets were active in the early church proclaiming revelation from God. So if you want to try and give a definition, uh, this, uh, unfortunately, the Bible doesn't come with a glossary, but here's my attempt. It's a human report of divine revelation. It's a human report of divine revelation. Occasional, spontaneous revelation from God. Uh, the New Testament describes prophecy as both forthtelling, like in Acts 13, where the Holy Spirit told the prophet, or through the prophets, told the church to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work of the ministry. Or it could be forthtelling, like in uh, Acts 11 with Agabus, who warned of a famine that was to come. 
Now, there's much discussion on if and how the gift of prophecy continues today. There's certainly no New Testament evidence uh, to prove that it ceased, though you can make some good arguments from history and experience, um, especially uh, about the idea of the, the frequency and the necessity of this gift. That's worthy of further study. Um, I'll just say, I believe prophecy continues today, uh, though I think it most, most often happens during the ministry of the word. So what I mean by that is that prophecy isn't the same as preaching, but it can happen during preaching and teaching and counseling and praying and, and, and advice giving, if you will, that is according to scripture. Prophecy happens when the Holy Spirit speaks to and through someone and applies truth in a way that illumines or directs or convicts some, someone of something about their relationship with, with God. It's uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 14, you have people who come in and they hear something and they tremble and they're like, truly God is among you. It's the same thing if you've ever been in a sermon and you hear somebody say something and you're like, how'd you know that about me? That, that, was, that was from the Lord. It may, have been, it may have been prophecy. Now, the command to do not despise prophecies, uh, the word despise means to view something as worthless or of having no value. It's used in Luke 18, 9 of the, well, the way that self-righteous people look down on fellow sinners. Or it's used in Romans 14, 3 of, of the way that fellow believers can view one another when they disagree on issues of conscience. So even the way that some believers are, are tempted to view one another in regards to masks. Why are you wearing a mask? I don't believe you're not wearing a mask. That kind of despising of one another. He says, don't have that attitude, first of all, toward one another, but also toward, toward the spirit. So this command is a call to be careful to not have an eye-rolling, irritated attitude toward the Holy Spirit when he speaks. That we must be careful to not despise or resist or treat with contempt his ministry among us whether by resisting to speak or resisting in receiving. All right, so how do we apply that? First of all, uh, we would say do not despise the Spirit's gifts. Do not despise the Spirit's gift. There has been much abuse of gifts. There have been a lot of faking of gifts in church history, and that can tempt some of us towards skepticism or even despising the idea of prophecy. That when you hear me saying this, you're like, oh, I don't believe that take. It's just tempting to do that. I want to encourage you to read, to study, to pray, develop your convictions about, about this gift. But pray that God would give his spirit to us in a way that would build us up. We are commanded in Scripture to earnestly desire the Spirit to work in our midst by giving gifts that mature us and build us up. We're commanded right here to not despise prophecies. So don't despise it. If you feel your heart raising up against particular ways the Spirit might be working, be very careful. Secondly, do not despise preaching. Secondly, do not despise preaching. Though prophecy and preaching are not the same thing, uh, as ben, ben Robin described it helpfully this morning to me, they're, they're neighbors. They're, they're similar sorts of, of gifts. Because a similar sort of thing is happening in preaching as is in prophesying. And again, I think that prophesying can happen through preaching as well. So be careful in our day that mocks the proclamation of God's word from the pulpit to not fall into that temptation. 2 Timothy 4.2 commands, preach the word. So remember, whether the Holy Spirit is prophesying or not, preaching is 
the declaration of the Holy Spirit's words in Scripture. So we must be careful to not despise it. You see, God uses the hearing of his word through a godly preacher uniquely. There's something that happens in preaching that doesn't happen in our individual quiet times. Both for me, and I'm the one preaching, but I still get edified uniquely through this in a way that that the church does as well. Because a preacher studies the word in scriptures to make sure that they're teaching it truly, clarify areas that are unclear, apply it to themselves, and then proclaim it in a way that ought to inspire others to want more of that. God, I think God chooses to work through preaching in this way because of how weak and sinful and pretty pathetic preachers like me are. I mean, if you hang out with me outside of here, you just know it's not that impressive. Like you'd think God would do something different. But God does it this way to where we all sit down, we open the book. My job is to say what God says. All of our jobs is to hear what God says as a way to show the foolishness of our own strength that we just need to hear what he says. So be careful to not despise preaching. Thirdly, desire to hear from God. Listen to this from Acts 10.33. Cornelius said, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have commanded by the Lord. Pray that God would give us a heart that wants to hear from him, that he would cultivate that in us. And fourthly and finally, develop discernment in listening. Verse 21, but test everything, hold fast what is good. The church is called to be testers of what they hear. Whether it comes through prophecies, and you can read more about that in 1 Corinthians 14, or whether it happens in preaching, you've got to know there's false teaching and there's false prophets who are out there, and the church's job is to discern between truth and error. You're to test everything. So everything that you've heard this morning, receive it, test it, and believe and receive what's true, right? And the way we do this is by studying the scriptures. We prayerfully study the scriptures in the context of community and together as we do that, both formally like this and informally throughout the week, God uses that to cultivate in us a persevering spirit. We grow in sanctification by speaking to God through prayer and hearing from God's spirit. Prayer is us speaking to God Prophecy and preaching is God speaking to us. We ought to desire both and be diligent and ready to receive both as a way of life. So, as we hear this text, let us hear it as runners heading toward heaven, both individually and corporately, to be vigilant in prayer, to keep rejoicing in God's faithfulness, to keep praying with perseverance, to keep giving thanks through every circumstance, to remain humbly submitted to God's will, to be sensitive to his spirit, to not quench the fire of his work through his spirit in us, to not despise when he speaks, but to be discerning so that we can receive and believe and obey his word all the way home. And we're almost home. Come soon, Lord Jesus, help us.